Good morning. This is God's word. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Hi, church family. Pastor Jason here. It's been a blessing to worship with you today, and it's also my privilege to bring a message from God's Word to you. And you've already heard the passage read from Philippians chapter 1. When I was thinking about what I'd like to share with you, and Pastor Aaron asked me to think about what message I might like to bring it was uh, earlier in the the beginning of this crisis with the COVID-19 virus, and there was a lot of talk of death, a lot of talk of uh, what was happening in other countries, a lot of talk of the death toll, the, the models they were running. And uh, to be honest, uh, that produces a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. And so I thought it might be helpful for us to look to the scriptures to talk about uh, the right perspective that we as believers can have regarding death. Now, it's not just the COVID-19 virus that makes us think about death. We find reminders of our own mortality and the fragility of life all around us. Uh, lately, they've started to compare the, the virus uh, fatalities and the rates of fatality to other causes of death and showing uh, the contrast and, and the similarities and that death is all around us. There are many causes of death. Maybe you've even had your own brushes with death. Maybe like me, you've had a couple of medical emergencies or a condition or even cancer or some uh, diagnosis that really hit you hard, that reminded you that our lives have an expiration date. And definitely we've all suffered the loss of someone close to us or someone we know. Uh, the loss of loved ones definitely reminds us of the fragility of life. Uh, I remember that within one year, from February of 2016 to January of the next year, I lost all four of my grandparents in the span of that one year. That was a hard year. You've suffered similar things. We've all gone through losses. And those losses remind us that death is real. And all of these reminders 
they can serve to paralyze us if we're not careful. Paralyze us with fear and anxiety. Uh, they can paralyze us even by contemplating meaning and and sitting around trying to estimate the value of our own lives and, and our own actions. They can paralyze us by the uncertainty about what should we do now. That's a lot that's been happening re recently in our current crisis. Is what should we do? And even governments seem to be paralyzed by what should we do? What's the right way forward? And, and so death can paralyze us. Or it can go the other way. And the reminders of death and the presence of death might sometimes push us to act in unhealthy ways. Instead of being paralyzed, we're, we're pushed into action, and maybe that action isn't the right way we should go. Uh, we might find ourselves misdirected by an overemphasis or an obsession with health or safety or cleanliness. That can, that can be an easy response in times like this, that we go overboard. Maybe we feel a compulsion to maintain some kind of tight control over as much of our life as possible. We, we might have that response. We might also, uh, and I've, you've seen this and I've seen this, especially on social media, we might get consumed with anger toward others who appear to not take the threat as seriously as we do. Or maybe we find them acting in ways that we deem irresponsible. And so we're consumed with anger. We, you might even be tempted to express your concern for others, maybe in unhelpful ways. Uh, I was reminded of uh, the, that, that trope, the stereotypical man on a city street corner with the placards front and back that read, uh, the end is near, turn to God, or something like that. And that seems a, an innocent way to express your concern for others. But I once saw that lived out in a very unhealthy way. We were serving a church in a small town, and there was a group that was very zealous to proclaim the gospel, but their methods were lacking. One Saturday at a busy street corner, as cars were driving back and forth, that group was standing on the corner with signs uh, painted with a message that in their mind conveyed the gospel, but in a very harsh way. And one man with a bullhorn screaming at the cars as they drove past, you're going to hell. Now, I hope and I give that group the benefit of the doubt. They were doing this out of a genuine concern for others and the very real threat of an eternity spent without God, but they were driven to express that concern in an unhelpful way. So let's hope that we're not falling into any of these traps, either the paralyzed traps or the unhealthy, unhelpful action steps. How should we then be thinking about death right now? What should be our approach? Well, the first truth that we can see is that death is a real and ever-present concern. You might say it's a fact of life. And the Bible does not shrink back from this truth. In Hebrews 
chapter 9, verse 27, we see that death is certain. It says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The Bible doesn't shrink back. Death is an ever-present concern. Job has a portion that's, that's often read at funerals uh, from Job chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. It's a part of a poetic expression about death and how it relates to humans and how God interacts. But this one part says, Anyone born of a woman is short of days and full of trouble. He blossoms like a flower, then withers. He flees like a shadow and does not last. The Bible doesn't shriek back from this truth. Death is certain. You know, in our current comfortable modern lives, we've actually become greatly sheltered from death. And so when something like this virus crisis, this epidemic comes, it it shakes us back to a reality to think about death in this way. But for most of human history, death was much closer to the daily lives of human beings and, and not far from their experiences and their everyday thoughts. I, I was reading an article about the church's response to this crisis and death in general. And uh, the author, his name is Carl Truman. He, he wrote about this, and, and here's a, a short excerpt. In past times, people did not go to church to be made happy. They went to have their misery explained to them. Life in the 16th century was miserable, and it ended in death. People wanted the tools to face reality, not distractions to make them feel good about themselves. Our lives may be, on average, more comfortable than those of our ancestors, but that is a temporary state of affairs, and our end is just the same as theirs. So, grim as it sounds, it is the task of the church to fight not so much against physical plagues, which come and go, but rather to fight against what has been called the age of analgesics. So, we've been reminded that our lives are fragile that our end may come sooner than we wish, that death is a real and ever-present concern. So what's going to be our response then? We're all going to have some kind of response. Uh, So I wanted to share with you some of the typical responses that we see in humanity. And these are expressed, I'm going to share with you four quotes, kind of they span the ages and they kind of span human thought. So from popular uh, culture, but they help us see four different approaches to death. And then I'm going to suggest none of these fit exactly what we see in Scripture, and we're going to offer a fifth uh, approach. But, but one common response when confronted with one's own mortality, when confronted with death, is to ignore death, to ignore the approach of death. Cicero, uh, he had this, this one line, you've probably heard it before. It says, no one is so old that he does not think he can live another year. 
In other words, it's easy for us just to put off the approach of death. That's, that's one approach. And then you go to the other extreme, uh, uh, well, maybe not the other extreme, but another extreme, and that is to fight and resist death at all costs. Now, we see this a lot. Maybe, maybe we don't draw the line to resisting and fighting death itself, but we definitely see resisting and fighting aging at all costs. And the end result of aging is death. But our culture is rampant with the resistance to aging. And so we might can relate to that famous poem by Dylan Thomas. And here's just uh, the gist of that, of that poem. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. So that would be the response of fighting and resisting death at all costs. Then, uh, the famous author uh, Mitch Album he writes about the idea of being paralyzed by the fear of one's own death. He says, man alone chimes the hour. And because of this, man alone suffers a paralyzing fear that no other creature endures a fear of time running out. So that would be this obsession with death and, and just being consumed by the, the, the hourglass running out of time. And then there is another approach that almost sounds healthy. And that is to accept that death is part of life. In other words, Francis Bacon, he a uh, famous artist and, and, and philosopher, he says, it is as natural to die as to be born. Now, in a lot of ways, that's true. But some people take that to the extreme when they, when they think, and that's all there is. You close your eyes for the last time, and that's the end. And that is the probably the prevailing uh, idea that, that a lot of Western people hold to. But none of these approaches necessarily alleviates our fears of death. And they definitely, none of these captures the depth of understanding that we see in the scriptures when it comes to death. So I want to turn now to, to thinking about Philippians chapter 1. And, and in this passage, Paul is candidly confronting this very real possibility that his imprisonment for the sake of the gospel might soon end with his martyrdom. Now, from our vantage point, we know that Paul was able to live several more years, four or five, six years, depending on how you time his imprisonment, the writing of the letters, and when he was uh, released, and then returned back to prison and finally martyred. But at the time he wrote Philippians chapter 1, it was very, in his mind, very likely that his martyrdom was around the corner. And, f- and in, in reality, four, five, six years, that is right around the corner in many, from many perspectives. And so as he wrote about this potential and impending death for the sake of the gospel, he wrote about facing death. And so in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, he wrote these words. He says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything but that now, as always, with all courage, 
Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Wow, I mean, it, that just blows my mind when I read these words that he's saying. And you know, how could Paul speak of his own death in this way? That he would gladly embrace it if it was for the glory, for the honor of Christ. And he's communicating a truth that all believers need to know. So this is where I want us to start. That followers of Jesus have no reason to fear death. Followers of Jesus have no reason to fear death. Our understanding of the truth of God communicating in the scripture give us, rather than fear, they give us hope and assurance that overcome fear and overcome anxiety. The, the fear and anxiety that death seeks to rule over our hearts. And these uh, truths that we're going to see in, in the scripture, they remind us that, first of all, God is the creator. God is the giver of life. All things serve his purpose. Everything, even death, answers to the sovereignty of God. And so, one reason that we do not have uh, any reason to fear death is, is this truth. God appoints the time of our death. God appoints the time of our death. There are a lot of unknowns about death, but that fact that the timing is unknown to us it is probably one of the most worrisome, one of the most anxiety-producing parts of death, that we don't know when our time will come. And so when we are reminded about our own mortality, it paralyzes us because we don't know when this life will end for us. And so sometimes we can become obsessed with preventing the coming of our death. Uh, a lot of people that are focusing on uh, health and fitness and exercise, it's more than just let's, let's live a, a good, long, healthy life. For some of those people, it's an obsession with doing all they can to prevent the coming of their own death. And you can see this lived out in many ways. Uh, there is actually a, a term for the fear of one's own impending death, thanatophobia. And yes, if you're a Marvel fan, you recognize Thanos. His name is there. And there's a reason. Thanatophobia, the fear of one's own impending death. But see, we don't have to give way to this anxiety because God sets the time of our death and we trust God. That's a hard place to get to sometimes, but it is a truth that is a building block for why we do not fear death. God appoints the time of our death, and therefore we can trust God and not fixate on our own death, not be consumed with the timing of our death or preventing the coming of that. We live our lives for God in hope and in trust. You know, there's a, a famous Civil War general that was the perfect example of this. Yeah, his name was uh, Thomas Jackson, Civil War general. He had a nickname. His nickname was Stonewall. So you've heard of Stonewall Jackson. Well, 
Well, when he was just a brigadier, brigadier general, uh, the general over him, his commanding officer, saw uh, Stonewall Jackson uh, in battle and gave him this nickname, Stonewall, because General Jackson stood confident and immovable in the face of enemy fire. And that calm courage, even when death was raging around him, became a trademark of Jackson's leadership. When he was asked uh, how he could maintain this unflappable composure in the middle of battle, Jackson, being a man of strong faith in Jesus Christ, he responded this way. And this is what General Jackson said. My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. This is a, this is a real part of why we don't fear death. Because our life and our death are in the hands of our God, and we trust Him. So as General Jackson said, we can feel as safe in battle as we feel in bed. Or to put it in our context, we can feel as safe at a time of crisis with a pandemic virus as at a time when all it, all are in perfect health. So this, this seems to be the exact idea that Paul is teaching as he's comparing the two fates that seem to sit before him as he's writing from imprisonment. He, he says he has two options ahead. One option is to live and to continue to serve Christ. And the other option, option is to die and to enjoy the presence of Christ. So Paul expresses these two paths forward like this. In Philippians 1, verses 21 and 20 through 23, he says, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. So when Paul says here that I am torn between the two, I don't know which I should choose. One thing we have to be clear about is he's not saying that the actual choice is in his hands. And he's definitely not saying that he's considering hastening the end of his life so that he can get to die and go be with Jesus. You know, the scriptures never encourage that approach to death, to seek after death, to hasten death. And it, it cannot be considered the God-honoring way to think about death. That's not what Paul is saying. Rather, Paul is saying that he has a strong desire for both of these paths. The path to live and to serve the church and build up the church and spread the gospel. He has a desire for that. He also has a strong desire to die and be with Christ. And if the choice were up to him, he says, he's not sure which he would choose. Ultimately, though, the decision is up to God and not to Paul and not to us. 
But as Paul's reflecting, and so he's kind of writing as he's reflecting, and a couple of verses later, he's going to say that he does know the conclusion. He does know which path he will be led down because it's not up to him and because it is up to God. He knew that for a time at least, God was not finished with him and that the work he was doing of preaching the gospel, building up the church, that was not yet completed. And so he was able to say then he was going to remain. In the the next verse, verse 24 and verse 25, he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He's talking to the church. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. And so Paul's saying, this decision is up to God. If it were up to me, I don't know which way, not, which way I will go, but because I know the character, the heart of God, and the plan and purpose he's been living out through me, I know he's going to give me a little more time to continue to build up the church, preach the gospel. And so taking Paul's example here, we don't fear the end of this life because the timing of our death is in God's hand. Now, Paul goes on to to tell us another deep truth, another truth for why we do not fear death. Paul speaks about hope in the face of death. Paul tells us that when our time in this life is over, it will be to our gain. Instead of losing life, we will be gaining. And this is a hope that only believers can claim with confidence. Look at verse 21. Paul says, For to me, To live is Christ, and to die is gain. To die is gain. That is a bold statement. And in the wrong context, out of the wrong mouth, that might be a horrible statement. But in this context, the context of Paul writing about the understanding of death through the eyes of faith, to die is gain. Now, It's a hard statement because all we've ever known is this life. And all we've ever known is this world, this creation, and these loved ones that surround us and these experiences. We know nothing of otherworldly, of heavenly realm experiences. But Paul is communicating a truth that's promoted all throughout the scripture, that there is a reality beyond this world. And by God's grace, it is far greater than anything we have yet known. That's why Paul can say, to die is gain. What a thought. However, this idea, you know, in some ways it's been corrupted a little bit, it's been twisted a little bit, mostly by well-intentioned individuals. Uh, But the gain we look for upon our death is not a gain measured by worldly standards. See, in the scriptures, we see some descriptions of heaven, which by necessity 
have leaned on earthly comparisons to offer a hint of the heavenly reality. But the gain we receive uh, is not to come in the form of mansions or streets made of precious metals or a city made of gemstones. Those things, they describe the setting of our receipt of the gain to come, but not the gain itself. The gain we look for cannot be measured by comparison to earthly things. The gain we look for is to dwell in the eternal presence of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Paul says in verse 23, I long to depart, to depart from this world, this life. I long to depart and be with Christ which is far better. Of all the things Paul could have said, his chief longing is to be with Jesus. Jesus is our gain. Jesus is the one we long to see. And this longing transcends the desire to be done with this world and its burdens and its toils. See, Paul could have said that. Paul could have said, I long for these chains to drop away, and for me to be free. And that that would be a good thing. That probably was a longing in Paul's heart. But he's speaking about the transcendent longing, Jesus. And, And that longing to be with Jesus also transcends other longings that we do attach to the next life. These are good longings. Longings to see loved ones who've gone ahead. Longings to have questions answered and mysteries uncovered, longings to see the wonders of the heavenly realm and so much more that awaits us. These are all good longings. But what Paul's trying to tell us, the reason we don't fear death is because there is a chief longing. There is a compelling longing and that is to be with Jesus forever. And it's that longing that once and for all can conquer the fear of death. And instead, we begin to see death for what it is, the gateway through which we pass on our way to our Savior's presence. You've heard the saying, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Right? You've heard that. But we see now through eyes of faith We pass through death into our Savior's presence. But remember, this is only true for those who have a right relationship with God because they've been forgiven their sins. They've been made righteous by God's grace upon placing their faith in Jesus as their Savior. Only by this are we prepared to pass through death into eternal life with Jesus our Savior. And I wonder, let's let's make this personal just for a minute. Can you say today that you have that kind of assurance? If you were sitting in that house, confined, imprisoned with Paul, could you say with assurance that if you were to die, it would be to your gain because you have the assurance of life after death? That assurance can be yours 
today. It comes, see, not from depending on your own good works or your own religious observance. And that is so good. That is part of the good news. Because the Bible makes it clear that you and I, we, we could never do enough good. We can never be religious enough. We can never avoid sin enough to have our works cover over our sinful rebellion against the holy and righteous God. The sin for which we need cleansing can't just be avoided by not doing things because the sin for which we need cleansing and forgiveness originates in our own hearts. And the only hope we have for eternal life comes from God no longer counting our sin against us. That kind of forgiveness, it only comes by God's grace through our faith in Jesus who satisfied God's righteous wrath on our behalf through his death on the cross. And then Jesus' resurrection, which we celebrated last week, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, but we celebrate his resurrection every first day of the week, like today, when we gather to worship. That resurrection of Jesus points to God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. In other words, our forgiveness has been purchased. Our salvation has been accomplished. Jesus' resurrection is assurance of that. If we will but cast all our hope and our faith upon Jesus. And that is how we prepare to face death without fear. Now, for us, in Christ, death is but a bridge from one life, a temporary life, to another, eternal life. Another way that we can prepare for death, so once we've had a right relationship with God established by faith in Jesus Christ, we also want to make sure that we are loving the people around us well, that we're showing love and grace to the people in our lives. Reflecting on the separation that comes at death, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote these words about death. The bitterest tears shed over graves are for words left unsaid and deeds left undone. So it's true. Life is short and we don't know when our time will come. Only God knows that. Therefore, we must love much. We must always show grace to the people around us. And Paul, he was speaking to the Philippian believers about one more important truth that informs the way we approach death, that is part of our being prepared for death. And it can be summed up in this way. While we yet live, we have gospel work to do. While we yet live, we have gospel work to do. Paul's, Paul's overarching point of this, this part, this passage of Philippians, this, the second part of the chapter one, he, he's encouraging believers, both 
by his own example and by his words, he's encouraging believers to prioritize fruitful gospel work in their lives. So, so to put this in context of Paul's situation and ours, we, sh- we should say it this way, though. Even when there is risk to our lives and livelihood, we still prioritize fruitful gospel work in our lives. Jesus said it a different way. Jesus said, if you would come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. In other words, we value our relationship with Jesus and we value the gospel cause for which he died to the extent that we're willing to risk everything, even our lives, for the furthering of that kingdom. And that's the same principle by which the apostles lived, risking their lives to spread the gospel and build up the church, that the first century believers lived by that principle, Christian martyrs throughout time, missionaries of every age, including our own, and even believers who minister to the sick and the dying during plagues and pandemics over the last 2,000 years. That includes Christian brothers and sisters who, because of their faith, face death right now in hospitals and other places of care all over the world to care for the sick and the dying because they know they're valuing Christ, they're serving His purposes, even at the risk of their own lives. Now, there have been a lot of studies done tracing uh, the spread of Christianity throughout the world. But one interesting uh, aspect is, is the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire and the effect of disease. Specifically, the, uh, the credit that, that is given to Christians caring for the sick and the dying uh, even during pandemics and plagues and, and, and various issues of health that were happening. And when the Christians would go in when no one else would. And what was spread was faith. And, and the, the faith in Jesus Christ was spread through one avenue of Christians caring for the sick and the dying. Much later than the Roman Empire, we see an example of that with Martin Luther. In 1527, so this is, uh, we're seeing uh, the, the Reformation in its early years. In 1527, you've got Martin Luther. He's there in uh, Wittenberg. And the bubonic plague is making its way through Europe. And Martin Luther was being pressured by the people that loved him, but also by the people that knew his important work of the Reformation and serving the church. And they were pressuring Martin Luther to leave the crowded city, to go out into the countryside, to find shelter, uh, save his life and his family so he could prolong his ministry. But he chose instead to to stay and to head up the not only the, the, the work of the church to continue the, the Reformation, but also to, to help encourage people in their care for the sick and the dying. And others began to write to Martin Luther uh, for his counsel about whether it was right for them to stay where they were and minister to the sick and the dying, or should they flee 
and prolong their own lives and seek shelter. And so Martin Luther wrote this 12-page pamphlet called Living and Dying as a Christian, Whether Christians Should Flee the Plague. And now a caveat, we've learned a lot since Luther's time, scientifically, about how to treat and combat diseases. Uh, But as I read that pamphlet, it could very well have been written by a pastor during our present pandemic. Uh, Besides expressing you know, you know, the freedom of conscience, conscience that every believer has in Christ. Luther, he commends those believers who have strong enough faith to stay and to minister to and to nurse the affected, uh, those who are sick and dying from the plague, the orphans left behind. He wrote these words, It takes more than a milk faith to await a death before which mo- which most saints themselves have been and still are in dread. In other words, he's saying this plague is causing even believers to quake and to, to, to uh, be in dread, and yet some people have the strong, meaty faith to stay, to minister, to serve, to nurse. And Luther went on to say that you know, Christians, believers, we have a duty to ensure that our neighbors are cared for. He, he said that you, we each don't have to necessarily do that ourselves, but we do have to make sure it's done. We have to make sure that those who need nursing are nursed. Those who need to, to be ministered on their deathbed are ministered to. Those who, uh, who are orphans and need to be cared for, we have a responsibility. And if no one else will do it, we must do it physically ourselves If there is someone else willing to do it, we must support that. But Luther says it's all our responsibility. And this is part of what Paul's saying. We have a bigger purpose. And that's what uh, we see happening not only in Luther's day, that there's a bigger battle than that of the plague. There's a spiritual battle happening. That is true for Paul's day, uh, that there is a, uh, besides whatever momentary, Troubles they were facing, as difficult as they were, there is a spiritual battle happening, and that is just as true now as it has ever been. The momentary battle against this new virus is but a momentary battle. The true battle is for the souls of people. And so I want to begin to close now with with a one more quote from that article I mentioned earlier. It says, The church is certainly to help people to live, but to live in the shadow of mortality. The church must set the earthly realm in the greater context of eternity. We must prepare people through our preaching, through our liturgy, through our psalmody, through uh, the sacraments to realize that death is, yes, terrible, terrifying, but it is a reality that we must all someday face. But that the suffering of this world, or in our Western context, the the passing superficial prosperity that many of us enjoy, are but light and momentary ephemera compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. So here are some action steps. Action steps 
when we think about how to respond to what Paul's telling us that we don't fear death. We are called to life. We are called to gospel fruitful living. What are some action steps? First of all, examine your heart for assurance. Can you say today you are assured of eternal life because of no other reason but that you've put faith in Jesus Christ? Make sure you settle that today. Second, invest in your relationships. First of all, your relationship with God. I know we're out of our routines. Life is different now, but don't forget, invest in your relationship with God. Study His Word. Pray. Connect with other believers. But invest in your relationship. And invest in your relationship with others. First of all, the people in your household. Second of all, the people in your family. The people that you have already relationships with. And then the circles just go out from there. But invest in your relationships. You know, maybe there's someone that you're estranged from or that you have a strained relationship with. This is the perfect time to reach out and rekindle that and say, I've been thinking about you. I've been praying about you. Let's restore this relationship. Third, demonstrate hope in response to our current crisis. There is plenty of despair and fighting and questioning and worry and anxiety, but we have a message of hope. We can hold out that hope. So when you're speaking about the crisis, when you're responding to what other people say, when you're writing, especially on social media, demonstrate the hope that we have. And finally, as always, let's seek ways to share the truth of Jesus and invite others to follow him. We get to get creative in this time, but let's Find ways to share the truth of Jesus. I, I want to end with this statement. It was at the end of Martin Luther's uh, plague uh, pamphlet. And he ended it with this statement. May Christ our Lord and Savior preserve us all in pure faith and fervent love, unspotted and pure until his day. Amen. Good morning, church. As we go to communion, this would be a good time to gather the elements if you haven't done so already. This is such a unique time and a unique way to worship together. But I'm really thankful for the technology and especially a thank you to everyone for everyone's efforts to help us come together the best way we can during this time. In our scripture today, Pastor Jason reminds us we do not need to fear. We do not need to fear death or the virus. Jesus took the punishment for our sins on the cross, this you know, and that those who confess Jesus is Lord and believe God raised him from the dead, those of you, those of us, we are forgiven, we are saved. Thank you, Lord. But your sin is not just forgiven. It's also forgotten. God tells us through the prophet Jeremiah, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's erased. It's deleted from God's memory. Just like that term paper you were trying to write and you deleted. It's gone. But I find myself coming to him saying, God, I've done it again. I failed again. You know what the Lord would say? In a very real way, he would say, Doug, what are you talking about again? I don't remember you sinning previously. Your sin is forgiven. I will remember it no more. 
You know what I say? Well, that's fantastic. It's good news. It's great news. Your sin, whatever it was or is or might be in the future, your sin is forgiven. But not only forgiven, it's forgotten. But not just forgotten, perfectly cleansed. So what does that mean to us today, here and now, as we're about to take communion? Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that may we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. As we go to communion, listen closely to the word of God that Paul speaks to us in 1 Corinthians. Then, with me, come boldly with confidence. Because we have been blot, we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and robed in the righteousness of our Lord. We are a glorious church, without spot or wrinkle, a holy priesthood, a spotless bride. God's Word tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So Paul reminds us, let a person examine himself then, and then so eat, so take a communion, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So before taking the elements right there in your home, while the musicians play, take time to examine, reflect, come before the Father in prayer, remembering and reflecting on Jesus' work on the cross for each one of us. Confess your sin honestly and without fear, for you are perfectly cleansed. Come with thanksgiving, but let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, confidently believing the word of God, receiving mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Father, we come to you, come into your presence, and we come only by the blood and in the name of Jesus. Direct our thoughts now, our words and our prayers for our good and your glory before we take the Lord's Supper apart, but together. Amen.